Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. show you guys. This is the book. It's called Discipleship Begins with Beholding. This is what inspired this series, and I'm really excited about it. Um, This is what it looks like. But what I'm really excited about is that this series will bleed into our time of Lent this year. And Lent can be seen as a time to like starve ourselves of the nutritional aspects of life, whether it's fasting from food, uh, of the soul, or of the body. And uh, with this series, I think the true meaning of Lent is coming like into clarity. Like, what is it? Like, what does it mean to it engage with this Lenten season? And it's not a time of self-loathing, which is how I kind of figured it. Like, get rid of everything, you know, suffer for forty days. There is suffering attached to it, but I don't think that's the thing. I, I really think that Lent is just the simplification of things, and it's the recapturing of true beauty and is a reminder that only one thing is necessary. Like, that's what Lent is about. It's refocusing on the beautiful thing, uh, which is Jesus. So, though it's a month away, I urge you to begin to start setting your heart and fastening your eyes on the true light, which is the life of man, that's Jesus. And when we behold him, the things that we have prioritized and placed higher than him are easily removed and put back into their proper place. Uh, It's his beauty that can captivate and soften even the hardest of hearts, making dead things spring back to life once more. And I I think that that is what we're going to be really talking about today. Jonathan's asked me to to preach on the beauty of God, which is this very big thing. But this quote that kind of goes with this, like, entering into the Lent season, though it's a month away, but entering into that, there's this quote that comes from this book uh, talking about the beauty of God, and it says, we must call people to redirected appetites, not merely suppressed appetites. And I feel like a lot of the times, what we do as, as Christ followers is we feel like we need to complete, which we, we do, we do need to say no to things. But it's not just saying no to things and then doing it under our own power, going throughout the rest of our days, just white knuckling it. I got to do this. I can't eat that. I can't. No, it's really what it is. It's just redirecting our gaze on the one who makes all things right. It's really that simple. Um, And I hope that this sermon today really kind of magnifies the simplicity, but also kind of like navigates the complexities that come with that. That sounds like a a paradoxical statement. It is one. Jesus spoke in paradoxical statements, so I'm just being like him, okay? So, uh, first thing, biblical beauty. I love when we, I I love getting to preach and just starting with scripture. Let's just lay the foundation of it. Let's get into what the scripture is saying about beauty. And 
One thing I found pretty fascinating is you really don't find a lot of the time, like, in scripture at least, you see a theme of beauty. Beauty's intertwined throughout all of scripture, but it's really hard to find just moments where it says, this is beautiful. The beauty of God is, etc. You know, it's, it's very fascinating. It's more of this thing. So... With biblical beauty, there's something within human beings that yearns for beholding and cultivating beauty. And I was actually sent a tweet this week that said, uh, there's a deep human need for beauty. And if you ignore that need, this is in the context of architecture, but it applies. Uh, if you ignore that need in architecture, your buildings will not last since people will never feel at home in them. There's something about beauty that invokes a deeper uh, and satisfies a deeper longing within human beings. And the truth that we get from this tweet is not only that beauty awakens, but it simultaneously satisfies a sense of security within the context of being human. Beauty brings things to life, and the human heart can never be satisfied apart from beauty, which is why I think it's it's crazy cool how beauty's just intertwined throughout all of scripture. Look, um, you guys are going to, I love Genesis 1 through 11. I'll just say it. I'll say it every time I get up here. But it's the beginning parts of the Bible, and in the beginning parts of the Bible, it lays the foundation for the rest of scripture. And what we have in Genesis 1, in the beginning, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, it's just beautiful. And it's, it's extravagant. Genesis 1 is like on the cosmic scale, the creator God speaking beautiful and good things into existence. Okay, Genesis 2. Now we have uh, the creation of, of human beings, Adam and Eve specifically, and they're placed in this beautiful region. And in this beautiful region, there's a beautiful garden. And they're, and they're asked to participate with God in extending this place called Eden throughout the rest of the world. But then Genesis 3 happens. And isn't it funny, one of the ways that Satan uh, disrupts and deceives Eve is by provoking her with the beauty of the fruit. She saw that it was beautiful and it was good for all these other things. And so from Genesis 3 to about Revelation 20, we have, which we're in the middle of that still today, between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20, we have this, this issue within human beings where human beings want to, that we actually behold beauty, but we want to take it for ourselves. Or we want to be the ones who define what is beauty, what's beautiful. And all of that's just, it's, it, the, the beholding of beauty is not wrong, it's, it's how we're doing it. You know, before the fall, before Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, they're walking with God in the cool of the day. And a, a rabbi, like the, in the rabbinic tradition, they actually believe that God would walk them throughout the garden, teaching them how to cultivate for the next day. This is how you do this. You know, but then human beings wanted to take on that autonomy. Um, but here's two things with the creation of humans that, that's central to beholding beauty is, first of all, human beings were, uh, were beautifully created by a beautiful creator. I feel like we have the tradition 
of going straight to Genesis 3 and ending with the judgment scenes in Revelation. And we neglect Genesis 1 and 2, and we neglect the end of Revelation, where human beings are bad. We're ugly, we're marred, we're sinful, we're all these things. Human beings were beautifully created by a beautiful creator. Genesis 1.26 says this, they're made in God's image and likeness. And like the other creatures that came before them, the humans were also blessed to be fruitful and multiply. But here's the other thing. They were also blessed to partner with God in stewarding his good creation. That's awesome. That's really powerful. Uh, Human beings, a part of their likeness, their their God-bearingness to create a word up on the spot, uh, they are to participate. So it's like God creates us to work alongside him in stewarding the beautiful world that's, that he's created. Uh, we, we oftentimes talk about the world before the fall was perfect. Kind of. It was very, very, very good, and it was bursting with potential. It was bursting with potential, but human beings wanted to seize it for themselves. It wasn't perfect in the sense that like there was no sin. No, human beings were just doing what they were meant to do, dwelling in the unhindered presence of them with God and, and working to extend God's beauty throughout the world. I'm beating that point home. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but it's important. We need to understand that like at a heart level so that we can actually like grasp what beauty is in, in our relationship with it. Um... Beauty also within the Bible. Uh, here we go. Oh, yeah. So the prophets, th- there's this theme from the point they're exiled on, the prophets are always calling back to Edenic, uh, the Garden of Eden imagery. They're taking these like desolate deserts, uh, desolate deserts, okay. Um, they're taking these desolate places, these ugly places, and they're talking about how when, the, when God comes in, to usher in uh, renewal, these places will become like the Garden of Eden again. Like, that's the whole point of scripture, is God is restoring all things back to the beginning. I think this sermon will actually kind of image that in a way where we'll actually end off where we begin. Uh, more on that. But then you also have the psalmist reflecting on beauty. Uh, one of the examples of that is this one right here, Psalm 27, 4. We all know it. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to dwell in his temple. It's beautiful. That's what human beings were created to do. That desire, that, that when David's pinning the psalm, that desire, he's, he's tapping in to something that's like at the, the base of every human being. The satisfaction for our desires, any of them, any of the desires, especially when it comes to beholding beautiful things, is found gazing at the perfect, beautiful one, which is the Father, the Son, Spirit. So, human beings, we have a problem. <laughs> and so while God's beauty is constantly on display in Scripture, there's a little issue. Human beings' desire for beauty is constantly being misused or misplaced. We have turned to outsourcing our beauty. Outsourcing our beauty. 
This means we either want to be the decision makers of what is beautiful or not, using God's beauty and creation to our own advantages, or we want to place the beauty of things in the place of the one who created it, which kind of sounds a lot like what Paul's talking about when he's talking about idols, that we don't, we're worshiping creation. We're not worshiping the creator of that creation, which is really tragic when you think about it. C.S. Lewis scathingly reflects on this dilemma that in light of the staggering beauty of God's redemptive work through Christ and now made available to us by his spirit, the Lord would not consider our desires to behold beauty too strong, but rather too weak. This is what he says. We human beings are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. And in this, uh, in the discipleship begins with beholding book, he actually talks about it where, you know, it's like going, he's like, we have this access to, um, like this holiday, he's British, holiday. We have access to this holiday where we can go to the beach, but rather we'd sit in our backyard and play in the mud. That's what we'd rather do. We're far too easily satisfied. And I think that's really tragic because we've been conditioned um, in a way that things worthy of our attention must be accessible and convenient to us. It's a consumeristic mindset, especially today, this, this whole idea of consumerism. Um, but this consumptive mindset has blinded and numbed us when it comes to beholding. For the Christian, what we consume, what we behold is something that should be stewarded and cultivated, but we have fallen in love with the counterfeit beauty because it seemingly appears to be just as good, but listen to this, it doesn't require sacrifice or our relinquishment of control. So we have all these, dis these distractions. Jonathan talked about it last week. If you haven't listened to his sermon, go back and listen to it. It's fantastic. But we have access. We're like the most distracted age. We always hear that, and we're always getting beat over the head. You're distracted. You're distracted. You're distracted. It's kind of like, at some point, you're like, all right, I get it. I'm distracted. But like, how do we get out of it? Again, it's, 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 it really is simple. But this distraction has almost created within us this idea that um, Samuel Whitefield, the author of the book, uh, Discipleship Begins With Beholding, would say, we're overfed but starving. This is his quote. He says, we have gorged ourselves at the enemy's buffet of false beauty, and as a result, we are spiritually starving because we're overfed. Have any of you tried to decide where you want to go eat when you're not hungry. It's miserable. It's, it's actually what it is. It's every day. That thank, my family's not here. They'll hear this. Every Sunday, we walk out those doors and we talk for 25 minutes about where we're going to eat while my sister says, oh, that doesn't sound very good. Or my dad's, oh, we just had that last week. And at the end of the day, none of it, this is said every time. I'm not even that hungry, so like, I don't really care. And I feel like that's how we approach this whole beholding God's beauty, is we want beauty. We want to behold beautiful things. But when it comes down to it, we're like, ah, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not really that hungry, so I don't really care. Because I can go do this. I can go watch this. I can go take a nap. I'm a big time nap guy, so no, hey, Romans 8 1, no condemnation in Christ here, okay? I love naps, love them. Um, but culture is almost like bread within us. This idea of if it's not coming to me, if it's not like easy or accessible, it's not worth my time. 
It's like eating McDonald's your entire life. It's food. It's not that nutritional uh, instead of like having nutritional things. And this is a rabbit trail I did not think I was going to chase, but we're going to chase it. So Mallory, so smart. She is always telling me about these things that she's learning in nursing school. And um, one of the things it came down to, Todd, listen up. Oh, he's not even in here. There he is. It's about like, you know, training your stomach to actually eat vegetables. So, um, there's not a bigger rivalry on planet Earth than Todd versus anything that's green. It just, he just won't eat it. Um, there's this thing when it comes to, we have like the, ah, oh geez, I'm going to start saying words that I'm not even sure are right. Like these, this microbiome. In your stomach, you know, you've got like these cultures and they, they're these little things that like single cell organisms or whatever, and they, they, whatever you eat, actually it creates cravings for those little guys living in your stomach. And so if you eat a bunch of sugar, they're going to start craving sugar. Though it's not nutritional, it's actually unhealthy, they start craving that thing. So we, we have to do, that's why we have cleanses, that's why there's the whole 30, that's why there are all these things, is we need to retrain our gut to long for what actually is nutritionally um, important for us to thrive. And I feel like that's actually a really good parallel of, for the church today. We've gotten really, really, um, our, our microbiomes within the body has become like really, uh, it's wanting to crave things that are, try not to be too aggressive here, um, convenient. If If we had to retrain anything and we had to address what we're craving as a body, it'd be convenience or comfortability. So we just need to retrain. And again, Lent's coming up, which is such an amazing time to reorient our hunger and our desire by cutting out the the food that doesn't matter and and really beholding the one thing that does. Um, Thank you for following me on that. If you're a doctor, Grayson, you're in medical school. If you're a doctor and I botched that whole thing, don't let me know about it. Just... Don't let me know. Um, so here's the thing. We need to, this is the answer that we're trying to, to solve in this sermon is how do we live beauty-centered lives? Lives that are actually beholding the one thing that matters. And I think that as I was thinking about this, there's like two ways that I think the Christian beholds beauty. One's good one's best. And the best actually incorporates the good. So we're going to start with the good first. And and I'm not an expert in all this, but this is just what the Lord brought me to. So disruptive beauty, living lives uh, where we're disrupted by beauty. What does that look like? Every single one of us could, could identify what this is. I'm going throughout my day, you know, I'm driving to work and it, maybe it's a sunset, Maybe it's a a lyric in a song. Maybe it's something we hear on a podcast. Maybe it's just like a small stirring within. It's the Holy Spirit calling us back. And we're struck with beauty. Oh, it's beautiful. 
and then we just go about the rest of our days, you know, hoping that that happens again the next day. But there's some space in between that. It's kind of, here's the thing with, with disruptive beauty. It catches us off guard. It's seemingly random, and it's easy to miss if we're not attentive to it, if we're distracted, if we're busy. It's, it's easy to miss. And, and one of the things that I think about is, I actually think there's two examples in Scripture that kind of back this up. The first one is like, you're not missing this one. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just gets you. He grabs you. It's beautiful. And that's like Paul on the Damascus Road. Nothing could have distracted Paul in that moment. He had no choice. God showed up, revealed his beauty. He said, who are you? The Jonathan, again, talked about that last week. Who are you, Lord? And then set Paul on like a course for the rest of his life to, to answer that question, who are you, Lord? And so that's good. The other example is Moses walking throughout the desert and he notices something off in the distance. It looks off. Looks, looks like that, that bush is on fire. Huh. And he steers off the path, like, you know, he's herding, like he's herding sheep. And he just redirects it to go figure out what that is. And he's in a, he ends up meeting Yahweh and being commissioned to go like set the Israelites free. And like, we, we know the story, but it all began with this disruptive beauty, this thing that inter, like interrupts our daily life. But I do think that there's a vulnerability to living only lives where we allow beauty to disrupt us. Let it to interrupt us. And it's, we can fall, it, speaking of convenience, we can fall victim back to being convenient again. And it places us almost in a position of like, all right, God, if you want to show up to me, I'm available, but I'm going throughout the rest of my day. I got meetings. I got this. I got this. And it could go years. Go years without the next moment of disruptive beauty. So this is why I think a life lived cultivating beauty is more important. And, and here's my rough definition of it is it's cultivated beauty is intentional and patient and it's done over a lifetime. It's a life lived by cultivating, cultivating beauty. Uh, a life lived by cultivating beauty positions us to experience beauty in the mundane common aspects of life while also experiencing the times of disruptive beauty. So it incorporates it. And what's interesting about this is when we fix our eyes, when we're positioning ourselves to behold him, you start like the disruptive moments, the disruptive beauty moments, they start happening more because my eyes being trained to see him. Oh, that, that's him. That's beautiful. And you move towards it. Almost like a... My dad would be proud of this, a fishing analogy. It's almost like when you, like a, like a bass with a, a spin bait. You know, it reflects the light, and all they do is they just jump and they snatch it. They don't think, they just react. And so, living a life where we are cultivating beauty positions us in a way to pounce whenever he shows up and whenever he wants to show up. And we can also bring others into it. You see that? That's beautiful. This is, this is beautiful. And so, that's why I think... That is more important. And all of that really begins with uh, a verse that we're going to hear a lot um, over, I guess I didn't put it up there. I'll read it to you. Uh, a verse a lot over the next, I don't know, eight weeks or so. It says, 
Uh, this is the New Living Translation for 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, So all of us who have, that, who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. How do we become a transformed people? We behold him. It's that. It's that. Uh, a New Testament uh, academic actually is reflecting on this 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says this, from a New Testament perspective, the teleology purpose of, hum of the human race is centered in the Savior. As the underlying agent of creation, he, being Jesus, brings the promise of new life to fruition, along with the assurance that future glory will supplant present suffering. The Messiah's resurrection from the dead is also the guarantee that at his second advent, believers will receive resurrection bodies that are glorious and imperishable. Furthermore, when the Savior returns, he will bring about for his followers a final victory over Satan, sin, and death. In the interim, the time we're in now, he enables them to become increasingly more like him. And so just one simple summary of that statement would be, in Christ... Our longing for beauty is satisfied. In Christ, our longing for beauty is satisfied. It's not found uh, in nature. It can be found there, but the fulfillment of it is in Christ. We, we actually recognize the true beauty of nature, of uh, going to the doctor and seeing a human being on an ultrasound. All of that finds its fulfillment as we gaze upon the one who truly is beautiful in which all beauty derives from. Um, I, I had this thing that I was thinking about. Uh, we recently had this awesome experience where we got to go to Las Vegas with some friends and see Adele and, and we had this nice dinner one night and it all happened because um, our buddy, actually his cousin is like the sommelier for, for this restaurant. The, or this, I guess this restaurant group, which is awesome. And I started to think about like, what does a sommelier do? And I literally typed in sommelier. I misspelled it. Google's like, did you mean this? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you, Google. And, and this is the definition of what a sommelier is. Steward of wine. Steward of wine. These people devote their lives to discovering and savoring the complexities in each wine they taste. And when they find something amazing, they share it with others, helping them notice the complexities of the wine. This is how Christians should be with all things beautiful in our world today. To do this, we can't forget 2 Corinthians 3.18. To behold beauty is the first step in learning how to steward beauty. And when we learn to steward it, all we do is partner with, with Christ as we behold him in doing his beautiful work in and around us. I truly believe this is going to be the greatest evangelist, wow, evangelistic tool for this generation. I think that's it. Jonathan said it last week. It's this come and see evangelism. It's people who are transformed. As we behold collectively as a body, as we behold him, we're transformed in his glorious image. So as we go out there, people are seeing transformed people. They're seeing the beauty of Christ and what they're doing. It's like, um, oh, what is it? Maybe Micah? 
Someone's going to have to fact check me on this, but there's a prophecy that's fulfilled. Uh, maybe it's Zechariah, where he, uh, it says, an Israelite will come and 10 Gentiles will cling to that Israelite saying, take us with you because God is with you. That uh, prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. And now I think that prophecy is still enacting itself out through Christ's body. As we go out there, so when we come here, we behold him. In our quiet place, we behold him. At lunch, we're beholding him. It's this constant positioning of fixing our eyes on Jesus. And as we behold him, I, I, I truly believe that those people out there will say, take us with you. God is with you. Because they'll see his beauty. They'll see him in us. And we'll just say, yeah, come. Come and see for yourself. And then they'll be transformed as they learn to behold Christ. I, I think it's the, the next wave of, uh, of evangelism in the church. So just want to finish up this way. We're beginning where we started, okay? With this statement, behold, beauty is a man. Beauty is summed up in Jesus Christ. In order to be a transformed people who savor the beauty, uh, the beautiful, and share the beauty with others, we must behold the one who is beautiful. And um, anybody a fan of mashups, like song mashups, remixes, and all that stuff? They see you, Chris. I love them. I love a lot of people who hate song mashups in here. <laughs> well, for the two of us that like it, um, I thought this would be fun. I did a a Bible verse mashup, really corny, but this is the, uh, this is the, the, the sense I came up with. Jesus is the exact image of the Father, reflecting his radiance. And as we behold him, fixing our eyes on the pioneer and author of our faith, we experience freedom by his spirit and are transformed into his glorious image. Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.3, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Hebrews 12.2. Jesus is the exact image of the Father, reflecting his radiance. And as we behold him, fixing our eyes on the pioneer and author of our faith, we experience freedom by his spirit and are transformed into his glorious image. This is the man, Jesus. He is the man who walked on water, turned water into wine for the sake of celebrating. It's for the sake of just having a beautiful wedding. Oh, that hit me right there cleansed lepers, challenged power structures, the man who came to bring salvation to the world to defeat the devil in his work of darkness. This man is the light of the world, the incarnate God who was born to a poor virgin in a small town in Israel. This man is the way, the truth, and the life of all mankind. This is the man who was there with the Father as he began to create the beautiful world which we inhabit now. This is the man that created beauty because he is the fulfillment of all things beautiful. This man is Jesus Christ, and everything he does, every word he speaks, is saturated in beauty. Everything, give it up for Jesus. Everything he does, every word he speaks is saturated in beauty. I want to invite the band back up here. And when you think about like, trying to figure out how to close this thing, I just couldn't get over uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17. You know, 
he's praying, Father, glory, like, would you be glorified in me as I enter in to the crucifixion? And would you be with the disciples? He prays for his disciples. And then he prays for us, all who will believe by the apostles' message. And he says this in John 17, 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world, before Genesis 1-1. We're back to before even the creation of Eden. Before the creation of the world, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were existing in a beautiful communion. And out of that beautiful relationship, an overflow of love, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Because they're beautiful. He said, let the waters from the sea and the waters from above, would they be separated, placing a dome there? And would land come up from the water? He creates space. And when he creates space, what he does in days four through six is he fills those spaces with beautiful, beautiful things. He's a God who creates space. And when, when, when that space is created, he enters into it, filling it, blessing it. And when all of that's done, he says, ah, oh, let me rest in it. Let me rest in it. So I actually just think that I had a different way that I wanted to end this, but I'm being really moved by that. Um, I just want to be obedient to it. I think he's creating space right now that if you've never beheld his beauty, the invitation's always been there. And you might be saying, like, how do I behold? <laughs> How do I behold his beauty? I'm still trying to figure it out myself, to be honest. But it starts with acknowledging, Jesus, you're beautiful. Just say that to yourself over and over. Jesus, you're beautiful. Holy Spirit, you're beautiful. Jesus, you're beautiful. Father, you're beautiful. Jesus, thank you for showing us what the showing us the father's beauty spirit thank you for showing us Christ's beauty and as we do that just that humble reflection on him being beautiful our hearts will begin to get softened and as we do that over the course of a life as we cultivate these times of beholding him Jesus you're beautiful we'll start being transformed should have always been, which is existing in unhindered relationship with him. The verse actually before 2 Corinthians 3.18 is talking about the veil has been removed. So let's not live lives where our hearts are veiled to his beauty. Let's not live lives in which we take our eyes off of him. It would, how weird would it be Think of a wedding ceremony. You get up there and the bride and the groom, they just behold each other. No one else, it, it's like no one else is there. It doesn't matter. 
you're a, if you're a bridesmaid or a groomsman, thank you for your service. It doesn't matter that you're there. The bride and the groom are so fixated on one another in the beauty of one another that you don't even remember what's being talked about. All you know is that you are beautiful and I'm spending the rest of my life with you. That is it. That the bride of Christ would behold him in such a way that nothing else would matter. That we just be like, you're beautiful. And that's actually, if you want to read it, Song of Songs, when I was doing my research, like the most times the word beautiful is used and in that little book, the Song of Songs. And it's, and it's it goes like this, the bridegroom, I love that it starts with the bridegroom. The bridegroom says, you're beautiful. What does the bride say back? You're beautiful. And it's just this repetition of beholding the beauty of one another. And as we do that, we radiate his beauty. So I want to close this with prayer. And then I believe that God has created space to encounter him and his beauty, that we would leave this place transformed. And when we lay our heads on our, pill our pillows tonight, we would say, I am fastened more into your image, Jesus, because of your beauty. And then we'd fall asleep. We'd wake up the next morning. The first things that we'd say is, Jesus, you're beautiful. Lay our heads on our pillows tomorrow and say, Jesus, I look more like you. I'm more beautiful today because I've beheld you and you're beautiful. So we're gonna have a prayer team up here. If you want to come to the altar to behold his beauty, do it. If you want it prayed over you, do it. If you just want to sit there and reflect. But don't let this moment that he's created go by without telling them how beautiful he is, even if it's for the first time in your life if it's for the thousandth time in your life. Tell them you're beautiful. Jesus.